The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Hi, everybody. Oh, I'm so excited about this week's show. So thank you for joining us. I was just telling our guest today, Lisa Smart, how wonderful our listeners are. You all just send so much love and bring it bring that energy to the program. I can feel it. And I love your enthusiasm. Thanks for the comments you put on my Facebook page. Let me know that you're enjoying the show. It's not just about your enjoyment. It's for letting you know what I know beyond any doubt that this world is not all there is, that there's another reality that's right here. And Lisa Smart today knows that from listening to conversations that people have as they are preparing to cross the veil. Lisa is a linguist, an educator, and a poet, and she founded the Final Words Project, which is a study devoted to collecting the language at the end of lives. I find this so fascinating because, as those of you who follow me know, it was just a year ago last week that my mother crossed the veil, and she spent a few weeks in hospice. I remember even broadcasting the radio show from down the hall at the hospice, and my brother and sister and I copied down some of the phrases that my mother said as she was nearing Mm. her transition. Most of them were hilarious. My mother has a great (laughs) sense of humor. And so I have just a few of those that I'll share as Lisa's talking with us today because they fit so perfectly in what she's going to share. I'm so excited that Lisa agreed to come on today because she's going to shed some light for us on what happens to consciousness as we die and also has some tools for all of you for connecting more meaningfully with your loved ones at the end of life. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. Mm, it's great to be here. Thank you for the great introduction. Uh, you're welcome. We were just chatting beforehand, and you have done some work with Dr. Raymond Moody, and thanks to you, he's mm. our guest next week. But uh, mm. I don't want to put him up on a pedestal, but he's like the father <laughs> of all of the our understanding about the afterlife, and we'll we'll talk about how you came to work with him. You're continued to work with him now. But why don't you share with us how you came to do the work you're doing, the Final Words Project? Well, my background is in linguistics. So much my work uh, until this project was really focused on uh, things related to language and learning. I worked with adults who had problems reading, who had dyslexia. 
Um, and I did some research into how the mind processes language. So I, I was a linguist and a psycholinguist. And then when I was uh, 50, 52, my father, who was very scientifically oriented, PhD psychologist, um, became very ill and over a three week period, uh, uh, had, you know, had to, went through die, the dying process and I was bedside uh, witnessing and being part of that and loving him while it was happening. And during that process, I noticed very fascinating things going on with his language because, again, as a lang linguist, I was finally tuned to what happens to language. Um, and I had not begun this work thinking that I was going to be someone who talked about uh, what exists beyond the veil. That was not my uh, original intention or thought. Be but as I listened to my father's language and then began to study other people's words at the threshold, I have become convinced that something most definitely continues on um, after, after, well, I, I, I would have said death once, and now I'm more inclined to say transitioning. So, yeah, I like but, I like I, how you say at the threshold. We you know we don't say yeah. at the wall. It's not the end. It's a doorway. Yes, and it, there is very much that feeling. You know, as I um, first my interest began because I saw my changes in my father's language, and honestly, what happened is I was so stunned by what I saw. Um, first of all, my father was a complete skeptic. And he started talking about angels in the room, which completely Whoa. blew me away. And and then he started speaking in these interesting metaphors and um, almost like poetry as he was speaking. And I wrote everything down because trained as a linguist, that's what you do. And it was as if, as I was witnessing, I really had this sense that something was opening up, you know, and that he was going somewhere. Because uh, he started talking about a trip that was coming, which I have now come to find out is pretty common that people start talking about forms of transportation or going on some kind of journey or that they need their passport. Um, and this well, is also Lisa, yeah, let, let me interrupt yeah. you here and ask, what were what were your beliefs? You say your dad was a skeptic. Did you have a belief in an afterlife? I didn't. I wanted to. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I thought it was a nice, I thought it was I mean, I, I wasn't against the idea, <laughs> but um, I wasn't religiously trained. I was um, kind of culturally Jewish. You know, I was one of those people, if I was having a really, really, really bad day, I would maybe um, ask God for help. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. uh, but I wasn't, I certainly didn't attend church or anything regularly. I, I guess I had a few experiences that you might call intuitive, but Mm -hmm. If you had asked me, do you believe in the afterlife, I may have rolled my eyes. <laughs> I may have rolled my eyes. However, when I was 17, I did read Raymond's book, uh, Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life. And I think like so many of us, when I read it, you know, my eyes popped open and my jaws widened in wonder. But, um, you know, I was still, I certainly was not in any way convinced. And even Raymond, not to, um, you'll be speaking with him next week. I don't want to speak for him too much, mm -hmm. but um, even Raymond, it's only been very recently that he was fully convinced because he's a true, you know, he's an MD and really approached his work with, a, with some really beautiful and healthy skepticism. And so 
as I went through the process with the Final Words Project, I actually did not begin the process looking to find that something existing huh. on the veil. I started the process as a linguist, wondering what kinds of patterns of language exist, because I was trained to know that uh, when children acquire language, there are very specific milestones and very specific things that occur. Um, and so I was at first intrigued because I thought, huh, you know, I wonder if there are certain milestones you think that happen as people, people die. But very quickly, um, as I gathered more data or data when I established the Final Words Project and just in the process of those three weeks with my father, I was pretty stunned. For example, three days before he died, and remember, this is a man who never believed in the angels or anything, he announced, the angels, the angels, the angels say enough, enough, Lisa, three days left. Wow. And indeed, three days later, he passed on. Mm, and that something gets like your that attention. really, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Huh. And you you spoke of him you spoke of him using poetic metaphors. Do you remember the specifics? Um well one one this isn't a metaphor, this is just very poetic and then I'll tell you some of the metaphors, but one of the things he said to me, he said, Oh, Lisa, there is so much so in sorrow. There is so, so much, much so, so in sorrow. sorrow. I mean, that's beautiful. And it was, even though technically it doesn't make sense, it's, it's a form of nonsense. Um, what I heard him say is, oh, this is such a sad moment. There's so much sadness in this moment. But instead it was, and it was, there's so much so in sorrow. So that was one of so many kinds of things that he said. And I have come to find other people say those kinds of things as well. And then he had all kinds of metaphors. The first metaphor was on the night that he first uh, became very ill. Um, it was actually my birthday. And he walked out the front door of my mother's house at midnight in his underwear. This was not a characteristic thing he would do. He, mm. went to, he, he went out in his underwear on a January night. So it was cold, even though it was California. And he walked down the street. And when the police stopped him, he said, I'm looking for the great art exhibition. And I've got these boxes to bring to the art exhibition for my wife. Well, wow. my mother is an artist and had been an artist throughout their whole marriage. So a big thing that they had done throughout their marriage was um, to, that he would carry her boxes. It was sort of an act of love he did over all those years. And one of the things I didn't know when I first heard this from my father and later came to find out, it's very common that people announce some kind of big event is coming before, hmm. you know, announcing as if death is coming, even if no one knows it, if they don't know it consciously, they announce some kind of big event and usually that event is connected to their life, life story. So for my dad, he announced three weeks before he died, but none of us knew that he was going to die. I mean, that, you know, he wasn't in the hospice or anything. Um, and there he made this big pronouncement, and that was one of the many metaphors that he used. But let, let me ask you, though, um, people who are listening to this, like me, may be wondering, had your dad exhibited any signs of what we would label dementia because that's how that appears. 
You know, he didn't. And uh, yeah. he was, um, at the time, a psychologist. And even though he was in, in advanced years, he was 77 years old. Some people would call that advanced. That's looking younger every day to me. <laughs> um, but <laughs> he was actually still doing psychological evaluations for um, yeah. people for getting disabilities. So it was just a week before he was still doing evaluations for people. And wow. um, and there really wasn't any sign. But what happened is he got a very serious infection. Um, mm -hmm. And that infection, you know, brought, well, it's just one of those tragic circumstances where that infection will end up leading to his, his death very, pretty unexpectedly. He had prostate cancer, but it was very routine. Um, mm -hmm. And none of us were concerned that it was going to take his life. But he so was what, I, what I what I yeah go ahead what I hear in repeating what you said earlier then is it's the fact of what you've seen in patterns it's not necessarily dementia it's to me it feels like the same thing that happens in dreams a kind of a foreshadowing the consciousness that the doors opening and consciousness sees we're going on a trip or there's a big event coming up and it's kind of getting the psyche ready for that is that what you're saying Yes, that's very much what I think. And there are several excellent books about dreams at the threshold. And mm. you find real parallels. And so you really hit the nail on the head. You see real parallels in the dreams people are having and also the language that, that I, you know, that we have tracked to the Final Words Project. And what's interesting is as people are dying, they sort of seem to be in, um, you know, this kind of waking dream state all kind of rolled up into one. I mean, usually there's a very uh, uh, clear barrier between our dream life and our waking life. But as people die, it seems that barrier dissolves. And um, oftentimes the language that emerges is much more dreamlike. That's a really good description. Hmm. Wow. What I love about this whole topic is it really does point to another dimension and this being the show mm -hmm. messages of hope it's all about hope that that when that final curtain for this life comes down it opens up to another reality so what your father's death opened you to the possibility that you could find patterns in in language at the deathbed where did you go from there um, where I went from there, quite literally, my father lived in Berkeley, California, and I went to school in, at UC Berkeley. So literally, right after he passed away, I had these notes from uh, his his process, you know, all the words that he had said. And um, I decided to go to my alma mater. I went up the street to UC Berkeley and went to the linguistics department. And at the time, I imagined there must be a lot of journal articles and so forth written about the language of people who are dying um, because there's a lot of articles written about the language of people who are just born children right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. and toddlers so I went um, I went to the office and believe it or not one of my old professors was still there <laughs> oh, wow. and um, wow. yeah, George Lakoff is, who's a wonderful he does this great work in metaphor and um, you know, he seemed a little uncomfortable about talking. I mean, people still have a lot of kind of discomfort about talking about dying. But he he listened to me, and I said, you know, I, you know, where can you point me to articles? And he said, you know, honestly, I can't. Honestly, wow. I can't. Uh, there really hasn't been research into um, the linguistics of 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 you know the language of of end of life. So 
Um, what happened from there is I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And among the books that I rediscovered was Raymond Moody's Life After Life and some of his other books. And synchronistically, uh, my father died the end of February and about, I think it was at the end of March, where I was already very curious about, about what I had written in my father's language. A friend of my mother's came up to her um, at Temple and asked how I was doing uh, in light of my father's passing because he and I were very, very close. And this friend happened to be teaching a class with Raymond Moody um, mm-hmm. in early May and invited me to come join, um, thinking it might, might help me along. And then also my uh, tax refund came <laughs> two weeks mm-hmm. later, just in time for me to be able to afford the trip because being kind of... Uh, being in, in the field of education, I didn't earn a whole lot of money. And so there I was, and uh, I was at a workshop with Raymond. That was a five-day workshop. And on the fourth day, uh, Raymond Moody started talking about his interest in language and oh unintelligible, nonsensical language. And he had been uh, thinking that it would be great to someday maybe work with the linguist on studying final words. Oh, talk about the universe lining things up. It was crazy. And, you know, I remember when I first saw Raymond, you know, he's such a humble person. You know, he had his Diet Coke and his tennis shoes. And, you know, he did, I expected, I don't know, just because he was Raymond Moody, some kind of very, just somewhat intimidating, right? But he was just this Mm -hmm. very accessible person. And the moment I met him, I just felt a connection. And we have, we really have this uh, shared interest and passion for language and consciousness. And so I did one of the most impulsive things I've ever done in my life, but I do not regret it. Um, I was living in Napa, California. I had a very good job uh, at the county. Um, And I was on the way to having a great pension. (laughs) But I decided to retire very early and um, asked my husband if we could uh, move to Georgia so I could be close to Raymond Moody. And then another synchronicity, my husband was from Georgia, was from Georgia. Believe it or not, we found out later that Raymond and my husband both attended the same elementary school in Macon, Georgia at the same time. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Wow. I mean, life is so magical. It is. One big web. One big web. Definitely. I remember listening to Dr. Moody several years ago talk about his interest in linguistics. So you were clearly guided, and I love that you followed your passion and just knew this is your next step. You must have always been intuitive, really. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think I was. And I feel in many ways doing this work and uncovering what I've uncovered. And I'm really glad that we've done it in a way that's data-based. Do you know what I'm saying? Because for me, yeah. that it satisfies that part of me that is scientifically oriented. And um, it's like I can feed that part of my mind as well as my spirit in doing this work. And um but it, the more I've gotten into this work, I would probably say the more intuitive I've become and also um, I would say happier because I feel so comforted and held 
by what I have heard, not only in my father's story, because here was my father die. He was someone very afraid of death and dying. And it was for him, he had a really good death. And, and the angels were clearly with him throughout his passing. And if I could interrupt, and, this is the perfect yeah. time that, that, to share this sentence that you shared with me that your dad said in his final week. This is very interesting. I have never done this before. <laughs> yes. Yes, this is very interesting, Alice. That was his secretary, yes. And that just so intrigued me because I remember hearing that and thinking, what is the this he's talking about? Yeah. What is the this? You know, why didn't he say, you know, dying is very interesting, but this is very interesting. And I thought that's one of the common elements in the language of end of life is what they call non-referential language. It refers to something that's not specific. So um, this, what is the this? I don't know. It's not specific. Or you hear things like it's all an illusion. People will say things like that on their deathbed and you think, what's the it? You know, what is, what is, or, so it's, yeah, but that, that really, and I've never done this before. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. So you created this project with Raymond Moody, you called it the Final Words Project, and by the way, if you're just joining us, this is Lisa Smart, and she is the founder of the Final Words Project. You can find more about that at finalwordsproject.org. So tell us how you started out. What did you look into? Um, yeah, it was hard at first, you know, because there is, uh, understandably, when I went to folks in hospice, they didn't want me to come in, you know, and at first, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, being a uh, linguist, I was trained, you always bring like a digital recorder, right, and take mm -hmm. utterances of people. Um, but, you know, that was just not an appropriate way to gather the data um, at end of life because it's such a sacred and private time. So, you know, I had to really find my way in terms of the best way to gather the data. And Raymond was so sweet because, you know, he really, he supported me, but he said you, he, to me, he was really like the perfect mentor because he wanted me to make my own mistakes. Do you know what I mean? And learn from them. Mm. But he, he guided me without being overbearing about it. So, you know, we tried different things, but really, um, you know, we could not use digital recorders, especially without have, going to um, a university and doing formal research and having an IRB, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a guiding body to make sure what we were doing was completely in keeping with the ethical guidelines. Mm -hmm. And when I really thought about it, I thought, you know, really, I don't want to just collect data. I want to offer something that's healing for people because it was so healing for me together nice. my father's final words. So the approach I decided to take is to invite families to transcribe the words themselves and share what they wanted to with me and talk to me about it. So it really actually became more kind of an active um, an active uh, process rather than just kind of a passive process of gathering data. And then the more I've talked about it, the more I do it, the more data I've gotten. Since I published my book, now I think we have doubled the amount. We're, we're, we're up to about 2,000 sentences um, or utterances. And the categories are still, you know, things that still seem to be confirming what we've, you know, what our early founding, you know, findings were in, my, in the book. And your book is called so, Words at the Threshold. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
And how has that and been received by people? Oh, it's been so amazing. Um, I think the Atlantic published an article about it, and even though it was relatively skeptical about some of the afterlife uh, material in my book, it was still a wonderful article, and it gave me a lot of exposure. And but. Just to hear from people, and now what's happening is I'm hearing from people around the world. So what's so exciting is yeah. to begin to see universals. I mean, I'm hearing some of the things that we discovered, for example, the metaphor of travel, which is also in a book of final gifts by uh, Maggie Callahan and um, Patricia Kelly, who are hospice mm-hmm. nurses. I want to give them a shout out because they also um, had very similar findings in their book. Um, but you know, there are certain patterns that we're beginning to see now in other cultures and languages, and that's just so, so exciting. But I hear from people all around the world now, and it's such a blessing. I mean, I feel so honored um, to receive the transcripts and the stories. And, you know, probably at least, you know, I have one email every day in my in my inbox, if not more, of people who want to share their stories or their reflections. Yeah. So, and, you know, we, yeah, and... Right now, I'm excited because the University of West Georgia is, um, we're talking about the possibility of bringing, because I have so much data now, um, up until now, we did it informally. Raymond and I decided to do more informal research, but now I'm hoping to partner with some kind of academic institution, So, because there's such great software that can allow us to do much more rigorous analysis, and it looks like um, there are a couple institutions that might be interesting. So I'm very excited about that, too. And it is exciting, especially when that's your field of study, and to find out that there's nothing in the university system that deals with it. I mean, just think how that will open people up to talking more about death, which is so important, not being afraid of it. If we know that there's reason to to have hope and then go beyond hope to knowing that that death really mm. is a transition it'll take the fear away and we so many things we do is because that is the ultimate fear yes and when you lose the fear it's or have less fear at least and maybe more my uh, the spirit of inquiry and curiosity while someone you love is dying even though i mean it's it's for all of us loss of course is terrible but if there's less fear, then we can engage in some pretty amazing conversations as people we love are dying. And, um, and I wish at the time that my father was passing, I was so stunned he was talking about angels and was still a little queasy about the dying process and what do I do? I now, if I were to be able to turn back time, I would have said to my dad, oh, Daddy, tell me about those angels. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Lisa, we have to slide into a we have to slide into a break here, but that's the kind of thing mm-hmm. we're gonna focus on when we come back, especially as we wrap up the program later, how we can really ap- optimize this time with our loved ones by using their language as a launching point to greater conversations. So everybody come back after the break. Gonna be great. <laughs> Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Yes, indeed. You're tuning in today to a wonderful guest speaker, Lisa Smart, who's the founder who established the Final Words Project. I find this so fascinating. Uh, many of you have heard the expression famous last words, and I believe it was Steve mm-hmm. Jobs. Why don't you share, Lisa, what his final words were? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, does that just give me goosebumps? <laughs> I mean, I mean, my dad always said it's just a big black curtain that comes down, and I wish he had heard that before he passed because he didn't want to hear what I had to tell him. I just said, Dad, when we meet on the other side, we'll finally you'll say I I'll say I told you so. But oh wow, times three, man, don't you want to know what he's looking at? <laughs> yes, yes, and that's yes. partly why you know realizing. And what I've learned about final words is that to engage in conversation and ask people what they're saying, you know, and in his case, those were his very last words, but people say all kinds of things right before they pass. And many of us are shy or scared to engage in the conversation about what they're seeing. But it can be also an incredible opportunity to learn not only about the person we love, but also about source and what might exist beyond the veil. So, yes, yes, I would have loved to have known what Steve Jobs was seeing at that moment. Yeah. So this is, I was going to say this till the end, but really let's just talk about it throughout this final, this second half of the show. Um, I love your advice to how to deal with people when they say these things. So I'm going to share with you something my mom said a year ago on her deathbed. And I would like to hear how you would have responded to that. She said to the three siblings, do I have to go to work tomorrow? Now, she hadn't worked in 50 years, maybe 60. (laughs) Okay. And she just out of the blue, do I have to go to work tomorrow? Now, I know how we responded, but you from having dealt with this. And my mom did not have dementia. She had some memory issues, but. To come out with that, we started laughing, but um, <laughs> in a nice way. How would you have replied to that? Yeah, and a lot of it would be just like you said, depending on the context of how the person said it, of course. But the first thing I, the first thing I would not do is say, "Oh, mom, come on, you're in the hospital. Of course, you're not going to work tomorrow, right?" No, I. It would be more something like. Well, what do you think? Or where are you going to, you know, what, you know, I would engage, or what kind of work are you thinking of? Or do you want to go tomorrow? Or, or why would you go to work tomorrow? Or, you know, depending on the context and the person, um, there's so many ways. And the most important thing I would do is ask the question or engage the person rather than cut them off and say, oh, come on, get over it. You know, you're dying. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, engage. So what did you do? I'm so curious. I want to hear what y'all did. Oh, well, we just laughed and we said, well, Mom, no, in fact, you can just relax and enjoy and look, everybody's bringing you everything you need here. Isn't this wonderful? Yes. And so you probably saw something in context that if if she said that in a way that she was worried, then what you said was wonderful because it gave her, yeah. So it wasn't that you were, but when you said it, you weren't denying her reality or what she wanted or needed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that's why it's so important, like all language, it really is to respond to what's going on with the person, but it basically it's, 
I think it's meeting the person where they are and not negating their experience. So for her to say, no, you're not going to work, isn't that wonderful, isn't, is, would have been another wonderful way to, to do it. Well, of course, it was a wonderful way. So, yeah, there's so many ways to do it, but the main thing I, I really feel passionately about is not to negate, not to use the words in a way to try to bring the person back to reality, God darn it. <laughs> you know, because we don't know what reality is, right? That the person there is having their own experience and we want to support whatever that is. Yeah. You speak in, yeah. as a result of your research that many people utter what you call hybrid nonsense. I'm not sure if this falls in that category, but another thing my mother said was she was very adamant. I don't want them to bury me before I'm dead. <laughs> oh, that's a great, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that's powerful. But I think, you know, it's funny because in some ways that's a very real concern. Have you ever thought about that? I have. Oh, I know people I have, have nightmares it. about it, right? Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So no, we don't want to get off in that tangent there, but it just, it just <laughs> so many of your, your phrases. Oh, you have some wonderful examples of this. Let me go backwards now so I can go forward again or help me get mm-hmm. Help me get down from here. Things like that. Oh, wonderful examples in your book. Yeah. And, you know, the examples of hybrid nonsense, that there's some that I really, really, really love. Also, um, like someone said, get my camera. I need to get a picture of this. So hybrid oh. nonsense, one part of the sentence is, um, is grounded in this reality, and another part of the sentence is grounded on some other dimension you might want to say. So get my camera. That's the real thing. But I want to take a picture of this. And there again is that non-referential language. Mm-hmm. The person didn't quite know what this was, but the person was pointing to something magnificent. You know, they had that look. Um, That's or, awesome. You know, get me, uh, get me the, get me the uh, ladder, and they would point outside the window. I need to get up there <laughs> pointing <laughs> up to heaven <laughs> nice. so the hybrid nonsense when people put uh something grounded in the quote real world and something grounded in the other dimension and put it together it's really and, and it's pretty common wonderful it, it just so points to what they're seeing that we that just that veil parts and they just start to see now you you mentioned that the ladder that reminds me of one of your other stories that i'm familiar with of the little girl who fell out of bed after oh, her loved wow. one passed because she was trying to climb the ladder to go see them children tend to see the things that people at the end of life are describing is what have you found in that regard I have found that's very, very true. And there are a couple stories of kids saying they see birds on the ceiling. Uh, um, and then there are kind of funny stories of toddlers who are almost pre-language, right? They're just beginning to speak, speaking with uh, one case where the grandfather was dying and then the grandchild who was, I think, two and a half, they were speaking kind of in nonsense together. <laughs> They were just kind of like, you know, babbling, and they were both completely, it seemed like they completely understood each other. People in the family were watching and said it was so bizarre. They were they were saying these funny things, and they, they seemed to have an understanding that no one else had. So there well, you know, to be some I don't know, of, yeah. did you see that video on YouTube with the, the father who's carrying on 
a nonsense conversation with his baby. It, it literally went viral. And the, that child that. that child was having a conversation. So you've, you've seen this happen then with those in the deathbed, only they're not making sense either. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Exactly. And then children see so much. And, and, and then what's so interesting, too, though, it's also, you know, it is tragic, but not if you... The final words of children, you know, I mean, there are these cases, of course, where children have cancer or some some other tragic illness, but they are reassuring their parents. I mean, they're saying things like, oh, mommy, the angels are sitting right there at the table. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Or, um, So I, I'm right in the process right now of, of um, looking at beginning a project where we're going to collect more of the words of children who are passing. Mm-hmm. But I have about 10 transcripts from it. And the children are always so reassuring to the parents because they see things that um, that give the parents incredible comfort. If I could just add, you just reminded me of a reading where a young girl who passed in a reading I did said for me to tell her mother, I just flew away home, mom. I just flew away home. Mm -hmm. And after the reading, her mother sent me a card that she had given her daughter at the end of her life. And it said, just fly away home, Jordan. Oh, my. Oh, I have tingles. That's amazing. Yeah. So That's you're amazing. you're talking, you know, that our words point to this other reality. And I can come from the other angle and say, yeah, because mm. I can validate this from the ones who made that transition. How awesome is that? That we, It all comes together mm. like this. Mm, it is. It is awesome. And it'd be really fun sometimes to actually do some research to look at the things that people that you're hearing people say. And see if there are any similarities in the patterns or the way that things are structured yeah. or the kind of images or themes. That would be amazing. It would be cool for me to not know anything. Like right now I have this desire to do a reading for you and get your dad. But I already know that he you know, saw the angels. And But it would be fun to catch up with him and see what he has to say now. But for people that we didn't know what they said, to have them validate that would be fun. But meanwhile, yeah. let's talk about... One thing we haven't talked about is when people start seeing the loved ones that come. I've I've been at a ah. friend's husband's deathbed and I felt his mother there to, and his brother. And, but oh. how many how many examples? Not don't you don't have to quantify it. Why don't you talk about examples of people talking about seeing their loved ones? In you know, there, there are certain things that are really common in our transcripts, and they also appear in other people's research. And one of the things that's very common is that predeceased relatives and friends um, showing up, and sometimes people showing up who the person or the family members don't know who it is based on the description of their loved one who's passing. They don't know who mm. the person is. But so, for example, in one case, the, this father was talking about this woman in a blue skirt. And it started out where he saw her coming down the hall and then she came closer. But this woman gave him tremendous comfort and it seemed that he knew her, but he didn't have a name for her. So that that happens. But more frequently, <clears throat> there are these remarkable stories and they're so common. And we hear from them from other researchers like Dr. Christopher Kerr and uh, Peter Fenwick and others where they're, they're called takeaway figures. And this has become so well established as a fact that uh, even on WebMD online, you know, which mm-hmm. is a pretty mainstream uh, website, 
they show that one of the signs that someone is going to probably die soon or with, you know, usually within 72 hours, though, not always, they'll start having conversations with or seeing, uh, you know, friends or husbands or wives or children and so forth who have died before them and are taking them to help them cross over. It's so common. And what happens, which is also so remarkable, because a lot of people have said to me, oh, Lisa, come on, this is just the medication. You know, it's Mm. just people are seeing things. But here's what's so fascinating. When I talked to the nurses in hospice, they said, well, yeah, definitely, there's no doubt that medications can make you hallucinate. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. However, what happens with people at the threshold is that they're able to go between the two realities. So there's one really stunning uh, transcript where the mother turns to the daughter and says, oh, honey, Earl is here. And Earl was her her husband who had passed on. And then Mm -hmm. she turned and just started having a conversation with Earl. No one else saw him in the room, just she did. And and then she turned to her daughter and, you know, said, could you give me a glass of water, honey? Isn't this great? Earl is here. I feel so much better now because the mother was kind of, you know, was was feeling some anxiety about dying and so forth and was uncomfortable. But as soon as her ex-husband, I mean, not her ex-husband, but her husband came into the room, she felt this incredible sense of comfort. I mean, can you imagine what that's going to be like? For you, or like for me, when my father comes into the room, or I just lost my uncle a few weeks ago when he comes into the room with me. And, and you know, another thing that's very common as people are passing is they'll reach up. People will reach up. And again, you know, what are they reaching for? It often seems like people do so with a kind of a look of recognition in their faces. And this is, I would have to say, it's one of the things that's most convinced me that something exists beyond the veil, not only because of the transcripts I've received, but they're very, very, very common, these stories. But also when I look at other people's research, you know, again, Dr. Christopher Kerr and his team in, in New York, upstate New York, you know, these, these are medical doctors. You know, I'm, just, I'm a linguist doing informal research. But I think, um, I believe they had as many as 500 people um, in their study. And I believe the number was something around 71 or 72% of these people, either in dreams or in waking visions, saw um, a takeaway figure, at least one. Um, yeah, yeah I, had, be, I, had, yeah. I had read that research. And so when my mom was in hospice, I alerted my sister and brother. I said, let's hope she starts talking to the dad or her twin brother or her sister. And in fact, we did the, that third phrase that I wanted to share with you was when my mom said, just out of the blue, that's nice. Is that you, Ray? And that's <gasps> her brother. Oh, my. Isn't that amazing? It is. Very comforting, very comforting, because she may be the mother of a medium, but she never bought into it. She just couldn't wrap her, <laughs> couldn't wrap her head around it. You know, you have to, you have to have that personal experience. And I love that you had the experience with your dad. And well, why don't you share some some examples of terminal lucidity with us? Tell us what that is, and and it's just so hopeful. These this example. Ah. Uh. The, the terminal lucidity is another thing that really convinced me that something else exists beyond the veil. There are people who, they, the, the terminal lucidity is that there's this period of time where even if someone is unresponsive, okay, unresponsive, completely unresponsive, will come up out of their unresponsive state or coma and have clear words. They're lucid again. 
And often, well, always, the words that they say, they're never words of hatred or revenge or discontent. They're always words that are somehow about reconciliation or love or forgiveness. And they're also sometimes kind of enigmatic. So, for example, in one case, this person, um, his loved one was in a coma, and this person came up and turned and looked and said, it's not what you think. Oh, wow. Oh, that would that would kind of drive you crazy wondering what they're saying, right? What are they referring to? And that's another that's actually when you said what is he referring to, that's another example of that non referential language yeah. that I'm talking about that occurs. Um then in another case, and this one there's several examples of something like this. Um person completely unresponsive and then the eyes pop open and there's this sort of oftentimes kind of a lightness around them and she said, tell everyone I'm okay and that I love them, and then went back into the coma and passed on. Um, one story that I I really liked uh, is there was this woman, and her father-in-law was kind of, kind of a mean-spirited person at times, and he made fun of the way she looked because she – she, you know, was not considered traditionally beautiful, you know, the way we think of what a woman is supposed to look like. And um, and the other sister-in-law was stunning, so he would compare them and, and not be nice. And so he was passing on, and um, usually this terminal lucidity happens a few days or very close to before a person dies. So he wasn't that responsive, and then he opened up his eyes and he looked at his daughter-in-law and said, oh, my. I never realized how beautiful you are. I am so sorry. You are so beautiful. And she said back to him, oh, oh, that's Chris. You're looking, Papa, you're looking at me now with God's eyes. I thought that was so beautiful that she saw it that way. But, you know, but he had finally seen the beauty in her. That was always there, right, because all of us are beautiful. And um, so anyway, that was another story of terminal lucidity that he was able to see and be forgiving in, in those moments before dying. But see, this is the thing that people come through in my readings to say to the loved ones still here. These are the realizations that they have immediately upon crossing the veil and want to find a medium to make sure that they know this. So how beautiful that the veil parts early for some and they get to say those things before they cross, which is the message for all of us, isn't it? Let's become lucid right now. What is it we would say if we we cross the veil? What do we need to say? Oh, yeah. See with the eyes of the soul. Wow. Yeah. So what does all of this that you've learned tell you about consciousness? Mm. Well, one thing I hadn't I haven't spoken to about too much to, today, but I'll say a little bit without getting too weighty about it. But what we see in the language of the threshold, there seems to be a progression. You know, there's the literal language that we have, like, uh, "Hey, Suzanne, get me a glass of water." Right? That's very clear cut literal language. We both know what I'm talking about, right? And then you have metaphoric language where I might say, oh, my God, Suzanne, your eyes are like beautiful daisies. Well, someone might say daisies. They're eyeballs, silly. They're not daisies. But, <laughs> but we know metaphor uh, it is a bridge between sort of the imaginary or symbolic reality and the more literal one, right? And then there might be something like the goose is cracking eggs on top of whispers. Now, that's just sheer nonsense. 
right? Mm-hmm. So right. there's this progression of language that goes from the literal that's ver- that's very connected to fact or to this 3D reality. And what we see in the language of the dying is, is this kind of progression from the literal language that we're all accustomed to of this, three, you know, this reality that we're all in. And then the language becomes much more figurative and nonsensical. And it seems often that as we, nonsense is very highly associated also with transcendental experience. Like people have glossolalia, speaking in tongues, which is very nonsensical. They also mm-hmm. have these very mystical states and experience. So part of what has really intrigued me as a linguist and about consciousness and language is that we are accustomed to thinking that nonsense is just like throwaway language. You know, oh, yeah, they're just talking nonsense. Oh, yeah, something's wrong with them. But really what Raymond, and Raymond is the one who, who started this conversation. He's, and I'm just building on, on what he has taught me. Um, <clears throat> but it really seems that nonsense actually may have a very real function in our lives as human beings and in trans-dimensional uh, experience. And so that's very exciting to me. And that metaphor, and we all know this about poetry, that metaphor allows us to say those things that are so hard to talk about. And, mm. you know, it's hard to talk about love. I mean, love is kind of a tricky thing to talk about. So if you compare it to, you know, a sunrise or a, your favorite chocolate, <laughs> right, your, or cherry, you know, lips like cherry wine, it, it's easier. So we know that people have near-death experiences. They talk about the fact that those experiences are ineffable, right? They died and they experienced right. something that they just couldn't put into words. So oh. I think what I've learned and is so exciting to me about this work is that, you know, language, language adjusts and moves around and shifts as our experience does. And that all language is valid, just like all experience is valid. And mm. even, if not especially, nonsensical language. And um, Raymond wrote a book that I think is brilliant, and it has been shunned over the years, but it's finally going to be published in January. And it's called Making Sense of Nonsense. And it really is um, thought-provoking because, as I have, have already mentioned, uh, we don't want to cut off our experience as human beings. We don't want to cut off any of our experience, right? We want to really know who we are as humans. And that also includes language and nonsense is one piece of the linguistic experience that I am excited to know more about now. And it definitely is connected to consciousness. Wow. And I know we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Moody next week, exactly talking yeah. about that book. So it's just perfect that the that we've lined these episodes up like this. Huh. Well, you know, it's, it's, just, it's been so fascinating. And, and what came to my mind is most of the people that we talked about today were on their deathbed and everybody knew they were passing. But you've reminded me mm. of Wolf, the young man who I wrote about in my book, Wolf's message. Nobody knew he was going to die. He didn't know it at the human level, but the soul sure knew because Lisa, his last words as he stood up from a coffee table just before being struck by lightning were, I have to go now. Mm. He just stood just stood up in the middle of the conversation and said, I have to go oh now. Oh my. Wow. Yeah. wow. 
so I believe the soul knows and that the things that you're talking about just shows that it is the soul that's that's just starting to connect more than the human consciousness of the person, the body that's lying there in the bed. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I remember my 17-year-old was with us when my father was dying, and she said one thing I just loved. She said, oh, Mom, I thought death would be scary, but it's actually like being in the company of souls. Oh, nice. I thought that was so beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, as we bring this to a close here today, you, you've spoken several times about non-referential language, that people, you don't know what they're referring to, like when your dad said, this is so interesting. But truly, our souls know. <laughs> you know, everybody listening today knows what they're referring to. Grab me a camera. I have to take a picture of this. And oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. We know in our heart what they're talking about. It's that greater reality we came from, and they're going home. It's just yes. this beautiful, loving state of awareness that's here all the time. And with your work, you're helping us get to know it better. Mm, I hope so. Thank you. Well, what lies ahead for you in this work? Besides getting right it into now, more universities, still still gathering yeah, more information? Yeah, yeah we're still, I'm, I'm very excited about, um, I'm partnering, uh, hopefully it looks like I am with this woman, Marla Hughes who's doing interviews with the Innocent Research Project about the spirituality of children and what it teaches us about consciousness. And um, we're going to do some work around the final words of children, which is it's a little hard to do, but it's also very moving and, and instructive. So those are the two things right now that's on my And also Raymond and I will be doing probably a lot of presentation when his book comes out about nonsense. So I'm really excited about that because any chance that I can do anything with Raymond Moody is really just a, a sheer pleasure for me. Well, it's been a pleasure for us having you on the show, and I encourage everybody that's listening mm-hmm. to check out finalwordsproject.org and check Lisa Smart's book, Words at the Threshold. Lisa, thank you so much for honoring us today with your, your wisdom and your insights. That was a complete pleasure. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.